This podcast is sponsored by Bethany House Publishers. Order Carved in Ebony through Baker Bookhouse and save 30% off plus free shipping. Visit bakerbookhouse.com to purchase. Welcome to episode four of the Carved in Ebony podcast, where we give you bite-sized lessons about the 10 incredible women from Carved in Ebony. I am the author of the book, Jasmine Holmes. I almost said Jasmine L. Holmes. What a dork. <laughs> Jasmine L. Holmes. Um, and I am Good here. <laughs> I am here with my co-host. Abina Bwachiwet Answer, also known as Abina Answer Right. I'm cutting also you off. Also known as the illustrious, the incredible, <laughs> the indomitable, the... Nope. <laughs> I'm too British for all the compliments. Thank I know, you. I know. <laughs> we are talking about Frances Ellen Watkins Harper today. Longest name oh, ever, please. honestly, but worth I get every syllable. <laughs> Absolutely. Worth every syllable. Honestly, um, I have been looking forward to this episode to hear you just gush about her. So <sighs> go forth. <laughs> like, okay. Let's just start at the beginning because in Frances Ellen Watkins Harper's like life in her day, in Frances's day, the way for a black woman to make a way for herself, to provide for herself, to be part of the movement was to become a teacher. That was her option. Mm-hmm. And that is where Frances started out. She was raised by her uncle who was an incredible abolitionist in his own right. And this is what I love about research. This is what I love about research. I wrote Frances's entire chapter. I had already sent the book in, right? I had already, like, mm-hmm. first draft was done. First round of edits was done. Second round of edits was happening. And it had never occurred to me to look into her uncle and be like, uh, okay, starting a school for Black children and only charging them, like, a quarter per <laughs> yeah per semester to learn. Okay, writing letters about abolition. Okay, Black excellence. Like, just mm-hmm. she was raised around this man who practiced what he preached and Mm. he definitely rubbed off on her and so she went to union seminary and she taught uh, i think domestic sciences or something like that at Mm -hmm. union seminary and you know she was like she kind of came to a crossroads where she went you know i like teaching i'm not sure i love teaching Mm -hmm. and i think i may have another calling and when i was reading that from francis i was actually in the middle of deciding whether or not i was going to keep teaching Mm. and it was just like wow Francis okay killing me softly over there uh, <laughs> you know being a teacher that's the way that's the way that you impact people right yeah. and other ways are are scarier to consider and yeah. the beautiful thing is that Francis decided to consider them but while she was away at Union Seminary her home state of Maryland decided that all free black people who weren't living in the state at the time when the law was passed were now exiled from the state and could not come back to the state again because Maryland, specifically Baltimore, was tired of enslaved people running away, was tired of free black folks helping them and was trying to tamp that down in their state. And so Mm -hmm. Frances was exiled from the state for a number of years she went she lived with a pastor's family another abolitionist pastor william sill and reverend sill was responsible for the escape of eight 
hundred he is yeah refugees from deal. the enslaved south it's, he's incredible incredible and again william still i had barely looked into him sent it off first mm-hmm. draft second draft because i was so enamored with francis that i wasn't really paying attention to her surroundings i was just yeah. like but you know learning about him was also incredible and so francis mm-hmm. just had this background of people who were working on the underground railroad of people who were very serious and vocal about abolition and people who were very serious and vocal about education. Mm-hmm. And she used that as her springboard to become all of the things. Like what, Jasmine? Uh, <laughs> first of all, girl could speak, mm-hmm. okay? To such a degree that people called her the bronze muse. To wow. such a degree that a Confederate reporter was like, I heard her speak and she was super articulate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just incredible. And then also mm-hmm. a poet. Just her poem, Bible Defense of Slavery. Ugh, so good. Yeah. So good. She got married for love. She had a daughter. Her husband died. She provided for her daughter for the rest of her life. And it's such a tragic story. She got married for love and she was living on a farm and like living a quiet life and just enjoying wifehood and enjoying mm-hmm. motherhood. And then her husband died and there was no money. So she had to go and get back in, get back into the thick of it. And she traveled all over the United States wow. speaking and admonishing about slavery and just the word that comes to mind when I think of her is poise. Just yeah. poise. You see pictures of her, you know, you listen to her words. Um, also, Homegirl was like ahead of her time talking about them white feminists. Ooh, like Francis. <laughs> We're not ready in 2021. <laughs> We're not ready for that conversation now. And you just gonna start talking about white feminists. It's a Francis. Mm-hmm. I love her. I love, I love her. her too. I, I really her. do. Man, I feel like honestly, the only context I really want to add, because she is, you know, she's a little bit younger than the women that we've been looking at so far, but She is kind of in the same circle, same, you know, movement. But one thing I really did want to add is just, you know, kind of where you started about teaching. Teaching is what we're allowed to do as women. (laughs) That's the sphere in which we can have influence, you know, and that doesn't, that's not a new idea. This sense of women teaching being our main kind of primary way of having an impact is part of what historians call the cult of true womanhood or the cult of domesticity, which was Get into it. rife in the Victorian era. Get into so it. The notion of the cult of true womanhood, firstly, particularly was really about white women. And secondly, what the cult of true womanhood really was as a Victorian construct of womanhood. Like what is it to be a woman? And it was this idea that Women were naturally pious and more pious than men. And so they would be the civilizing and religious influence upon the family. And so that was that was the role of women. And that was in the private sphere. So what a lot of white women started to argue and to do and kind of move into was teaching. 
because they argue that teaching is simply an extension of the home. Mm-hmm. So it's this kind of finessing of public into private into public, sorry, in terms of spheres of life, which is how they kind of argued for it. Women are supposed to be in the private sphere. Men are supposed to be in the public sphere. This is how we keep women safe. And it's also the best use of their practices and their talents and abilities, their God-given talents and abilities. And teaching is kind of the first outpouring of this into the public sphere. So what's interesting here is for Frances, especially as a Black woman in the class that she was in, teaching is kind of the way to replicate the cult of true womanhood, Mm -hmm. being a respectable, upright, upstanding woman. Teaching's pretty much the only thing that's okay to do. Everything else is the male domain and isn't for women to do. This is a point of concern at that time. We call it respectability now, but it is this question of trying to garner respect, trying to garner humanity and dignity. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of these elite circles in the North, it's through replication of white middle and upper middle class values. And so that's where this comes from. There's an interesting article that I'd recommend people look up. It's in a book called More Than Chattel. It's a small essay in there by a historian named Brenda E. Stevenson. And she talks about counterimage. I've forgotten the title of the article, but she's only got one article in there. And she calls it counterimage. And she basically is making this argument of black women were never supposed to fit into this idea. They were never supposed to fit into this ideal of the cult of true womanhood. It was constructed on purpose in terms of whiteness. And when you look at the sources and see what Black women value about one another and their womanhood, it is advocacy. They have a completely different image of what it is to be a woman because they need completely different things. And so advocacy, speaking out for each other, learning from their mothers and their grandmothers how to protect their bodies from sexual assault and harassment by masters, like all of those things. So what I love about Frances is I feel like I see her from going from trying to be a part of this construct of womanhood to then being like, actually, (laughs) I think that there's more that I can do. It just Mm -hmm. requires me to step out of what I've been told is okay. But in doing so, she's, you know, embracing what has been the, the, the longstanding tradition of Black womanhood, which is speaking out, defending one another, standing up for things in order to bring more justice to herself, to her children, to her kin. And that, I love her for that because I feel like we're all figuring that out of like going from being accepted and code switching and sounding, you know, like people want us to sound and then eventually getting to a point where it's like, I'm not doing the things that I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. I don't, I feel like I'm just making myself smaller and like, can I take the risk to step outside of that construct and do something different and potentially have a bigger impact? She said yes. And I love her for that. I really, really love her for that. As the youth say, she understood the assignment. Right? (laughs) As the the kids say these days. As the kids. (laughs) As the kids say. And honestly, I mean, that's the takeaway. Like the takeaway is there in the the context. Right there, yeah. 
being willing to step outside of the mold, the extra biblical mold that is so often thrust upon us as women mm-hmm. and as black women and being willing to be a pioneer and be a trailblazer. And yeah. Frances was. Man, I love her. She's my bronze muse. I want to be called the bronze muse. What does a girl have to do? You know? I, look. <laughs> Listen. What an epithet. Like, can I have a can I have a nickname? Like what right? <laughs> we'll have to think them up. If you make up mine and I make up yours, it's it's less lame, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and then we can just kind of like we'll be like, people call us. Like, who calls you? People. People? The people. streets. <laughs> people around. Oh my goodness. Well, guys, that is all we've got for Francis. And next yes. week we are going to get into I keep on being so giddy about everybody. I'm so I sorry. know. I'm getting more excited as we go on. <laughs> I know. Um next episode is Charlotte Fortin Grimke. And Yay. the girl. I no <laughs> I'm excited mainly to talk about her because I feel like we we have different impressions of her. So I feel like we yes. might get into it. Yes. So I'm excited. And I'm like kind of a traitor because I'm more excited about her family than I am about her. But <laughs> but also excited about her. But yeah, that's all that we have for Francis. Please, please, if you don't do anything else, go read a poem by Francis. Absolutely. And just fall fall in love with her because we are. All right. Y'all. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.